Let me, uh, let me sort of set the context of where we have been for the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, so I had this great idea. You know, you come up with the idea to preach through a sermon series. And uh, it sounds great in theory or sounds great on paper. And then you actually jump into it and you realize, ooh, that's a little bit harder than I realized. Well, the Ten Commandments is tricky. It really is. And it's tricky for a lot of, the, a lot of reasons. One of the reasons the Ten Commandments are tricky to preach on is because in our culture, in our society... We have a, a remembrance of the Ten Commandments. We have a perception of the Ten Commandments, right? And so that perception and that remembrance almost assuredly does not match up with the biblical reality of the Ten Commandments. It's just true. And so when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think about the, you know, the judge in Alabama that refused to take the Ten Commandments down off of his courtroom wall. I don't mean to discuss the rightness or wrongs of any of that. I just mean to say that it, it gets kind of politicized or it gets turned into a news story. You know, or... When we think about the Ten Commandments, we think that, oh, that was just sort of some set of archaic standards for a group of pre-modern people who were, you know, just couldn't control themselves. That's really why we needed the Ten Commandments. And so we have all these perceptions of what the Ten Commandments are. And I'm, again, I'm just here to tell you the perception that most of us have had or do have of the Ten Commandments isn't the perception that Jesus desired for us to have. In fact, the very first week that we talked about the Ten Commandments, instead of reading through the Ten Commandments, I actually turned us to Matthew chapter 22. And this was a, an interesting section where one of the experts in the law uh, came to Jesus in order to trap him and said, Hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus answered by summing up the first half of the, the Ten Commandments and the second half by saying that uh, the first and most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments in one word, and that word was love. He basically said that the Ten Commandments are a way that we functionally love God, love our neighbor, and we even love ourselves. And so it's not just about a bunch of rules. It's not about limiting your pleasure. It's about loving other people, and it's about loving God, and fundamentally it's about loving yourself. And so in that same first sermon, part of what I did was I, I told several different stories about the brokenness of humanity, about murder, about adultery, about stealing, about all these different things. And part of what I wanted to do in telling all of those stories was to say, you hate all those things that happened in those stories, those murders, right? You hate it when people lie about you or, or slander you or gossip you. You hate it when people steal your things, right? You hate the brokenness of this world. And part of what the Ten Commandments does is the Ten Commandments paints a picture of the world that you actually wish existed. Whether you realize it or not, the Ten Commandments creates this tapestry, this picture of, of a beautiful and strong fabric of life that you wish actually existed. Last week, we looked at the First Commandment. Now, the First Commandment is very simple. It's very clear. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And part of what we talked about as we covered this first commandment of having no other gods is we basically said, first of all, we, even though we think we don't have other gods because we don't have little statues in our closet um, or we don't have these you know, gods from 3,500 years ago from the Greek pantheon or something, we think somehow that we don't have gods. But in reality, what a god is is when we take a perfectly good thing like a husband or a wife or like a child or a job or comfort. And we take that perfectly good thing and we make it more important to ourselves and to our security and to our identity than God is. That's ultimately what, what a false God is. That's having a God in the presence of the one true God. And God says, don't do it. And the reality is we do do it and we do it every day 
And we do it all the time, far more than we realize. But the good news is, is that Jesus perfectly obeyed that first commandment, not just when he was tempted in the desert, but Jesus obeyed that first commandment all 33 years of his life. He placed his identity and his security in God above all else, all the time in every circumstance. Now today, we're going to be looking at the second commandment. The second commandment, as most of you know, is that you shall have no graven images or no idols. And, and that sounds to a lot of us kind of like the same thing. The first commandment talked about, but I'm here to tell you today it's different. We'll get into that in a moment. Before we do anything, though, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Exodus 20, we're going to read through the Ten Commandments, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We're going to put it up on the screen. But follow along with me either way as we read through the Ten Commandments, starting with verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother. So that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay. Let me call time out really quickly. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. This is... This is the commandment of having no idols. Just follow along with me, if you will. It'll be on the screen. Just a reminder, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for this day. I thank you that um, maybe... Maybe some of these people didn't realize they were going to be here this morning. But from the very beginning of time, Father, you knew that they would be here. And Father, I would say that your word makes it clear that not only did you know who was going to be here, but you invited these people into your presence, Father, whether it's to have a conversation with someone uh, that they're sitting near, or whether it was to sing a hymn today, or, or to hear uh, scripture read, Father, whatever the case is, Father, I would simply ask, that you wouldn't allow anyone to leave this place today without having had a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, Krista and I, my wife and I, have been married now for 18 years. And uh, it's so funny because when you get married, you have all of these perceptions about what marriage is going to be. You have all these perceptions, most of which you don't even know that you have, 
about what a, a, what a wife is or about what a husband is, and you bring all those perceptions, all those misperceptions into marriage, right? Well, one of the misperceptions that I had was uh, as, a, as, a, as an extrovert, I automatically assumed that every other human being on the planet also liked extroverted things, right? And so Krista, my lovely wife, who's a raging introvert, I automatically assumed like when we first started dating that Krista would love to go out with like on group dates. You're like, hey, Krista, let's go out on this big group date, right? Or, uh, you know, I automatically assumed that Krista would, you know, would really enjoy it if we went to, you know, get togethers with my buddies, that she would just absolutely love being there with all these strangers, right? Because I love it. She's got to love it too, right? You know, I, I remember the first time we met was in the dining hall at Covenant College, and uh, all the athletes uh, had to get, to get to school early. So Krista was playing basketball, I was playing soccer, and there were, you know, in the dining hall, there were maybe 75 or 80 people, or I don't know, maybe 100, I, I don't know. And uh, so all the soccer players were all sitting, you know, in one area of the dining hall. We were all sweaty after soccer practice. And, uh, and as, when I was a senior, um, Krista was a sophomore, and uh, I had just gotten back, you know, from my senior year. And I looked around the, the dining hall there, and I looked, and I saw Krista sitting by herself. And I thought, well, that girl looks like a nice girl, very sweet. And so I walked over to her, assuming that what she really would prefer is to come to a table as the only female surrounded by a bunch of sweaty soccer players that she didn't know. Right, because as an extrovert, that's what I would want, right? And so I said, hey, you know, we started chatting a little bit. And I said, you know, you're welcome to come sit at the table with my buddies. And no, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, or whatever. And I was like, well, okay, if you're sure. And I was like, something must be wrong with her, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, but here's the deal. If I see you sitting by yourself anymore, every single time I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to badger you into coming sitting with my friends. And uh, so the reason I tell this story is because I had a misperception that everybody was extroverted like me. And I had a misperception that Krista would love to join me with all of my buddies. And, and the funny thing is, you would think that after a year and a half of dating, I would have learned that that's not what she desired, but I didn't. So I carried these misperceptions of what Krista desired all the way into our marriage. So the first year of marriage, I was always trying to set up group dates and get-togethers with all sorts of people until I finally realized that Krista just actually likes being alone and that 50% of the population also likes having time by themselves and doesn't want to be surrounded by lots of strangers, right? I had a misperception about who she was. Now, throughout the course of our marriage, um, I've gotten a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer about what it is that Krista uh, prefers. I've gotten a little bit clearer about what makes her feel loved, right? I don't think, and again, we could ask her right now, but I don't think she would like that. Um, whether or not she's ever doubted that I love her, I don't think she has. I think she's always known cognitively that I love her. I think what she has wondered at times is whether or not I have any idea about how she feels loved or what makes her feel loved. That's what these great books like The Five Love Languages are all about, is they help us love people not the way we want to be loved, but they help us love people the way that they want to be loved. Now, the reason that I use this illustration this morning is to say this. Uh, the first commandment, have no other gods before me, is really a commandment about who. It's God saying, it really matters to me who or what you worship. It needs to be me. I need to be number one in your life. What the second commandment about, this idea of having no other idols, is really a question about how we worship. In other words, what God is telling us in the second commandment is, here's how I would like for you to worship me. So the first commandment is about who and what, and the second commandment is really about how. It's about how we worship God. So let me do this really quickly. Let me, let me ask this question. 
The second commandment is have no other idols or have no, have no graven images. And so let me, let me stop really quickly and say what I, what I think that the second commandment is not prohibiting, okay, in order to get to what it is prohibiting. So what is it not prohibiting? I don't think that the second commandment is prohibiting art in general. In fact, I would, could almost go so far as to say that I, I know that it's not uh, prohibiting art in general. Now, I don't think this is up on the screen, but I'm going to read it one more time here. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, okay? Now, so you could read that and simply think, oh, well, you're not allowed to do any art whatsoever, especially of animals or trees or stars or moons or anything. That's, that would be a, an interpretation of this commandment. In fact, there's a strict Jewish sect that doesn't allow any paintings. It doesn't allow photography. And when you're in a part of Jerusalem that's sort of their area of Jerusalem, if you're taking pictures, they'll come up to you and try to stop you, right? Because they think it's wrong to have any artwork or any picture or any representation of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. But I don't think that's what this commandment is talking about. In fact, I know it's not because there are other parts in Scripture where God prescribes artists to make certain things that go into the temple or to use their skills to make other graven images The real issue here is not about art in general. The second thing that this commandment is not prohibiting is it's not prohibiting artwork depicting Jesus, okay? So some people, again, I don't know what church tradition you're from or even if you are from a church tradition, but some people would interpret the second commandment as saying, oh, by the way, you can't make any pictures of Jesus whatsoever, whether it's the Sunday school material of the cartoony Jesus, you know, or the laughing Jesus that some of you maybe have seen if you've been in the, you know, the young life world. Or if it's the blonde-haired Jesus that hangs over the, crowd, you know, the couch in your grandmother's house or whatever, right? Now, uh, here's the point again. I don't think that this commandment is talking about artwork that depicts Jesus. And I've read any number of different people on this, lots of people, J.I. Packer, um, uh, Skip Ryan, uh, Calvin, Luther, all these different people. And essentially what we need to understand in terms of the Jesus part anyway is that Jesus was a real man, and therefore it's okay for us to depict him in certain types of of literature, the key to understanding the second commandment is this. The key here is this, that what is being prohibited is that we use graven images in worship. Does that make sense? So there's nothing wrong with having a picture of Jesus. He was a real man. What would be wrong is to have a picture that we really used in order to help us worship. That would be maybe a breaking of this second commandment. Listen to what the Westminster Confession Uh, Question 51 uh, asks and answers. It should be on the screen here a minute. What is forbidden in the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment forbids the worship of God by images. And so again, the point here isn't artwork in general. It's not pictures of Jesus, but it's forbidding the worship of God by images or any other way not appointed by his word. Charles Hodge, this great Princeton theologian says this, idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images, right? Does that make sense? So in other words, what's being talked about here in the second commandment is, is really how we worship. It's how we demonstrate our love and our affection to God. And now some of you may be currently going, all right, okay, BP, that's enough. No, you know, that's enough. I don't, I don't really struggle with that. Um, in fact, some of you may be thinking, I don't really know anybody that struggles with breaking the second commandment. But let me, let me call time out for a second and say that using images, I think, in worship not only applies to public worship, but also to private worship as well. All right? and, and the danger 
of all of these commandments is that we might be breaking them, and we probably are breaking them in very subtle ways we don't realize. And so I'm going to throw out several ways that you aren't necessarily breaking the Ten Commandments, especially the Second Commandment, but ways in which you might be breaking it. So here are a couple of them. There are some uh, church traditions where they, they have crucifixes up in a sanctuary, right? And a crucifix is particularly a picture of Jesus on the, the cross suffering in agony. Now, the danger of having a picture of Jesus in worship in the form of a crucifix is that what does really happen to people is those crucifixes actually can at times become the object of worship for certain people. They can direct their worship to those uh, crucifixes instead of to God. Okay, that, that's a danger. It doesn't necessarily mean it happens, but it can happen. Second thing, there are icons. Now, an icon is essentially a statue. And so in some churches, you might have a statue of the Virgin Mary holding a baby Jesus, or you might have an icon of, you know, of some saint somewhere in the context of worship for the purpose of aiding in worship. And it's possible, in fact, it does happen that people begin to identify with those icons much more than they identify with God. Does that make sense? That's why you can buy candles, you know, that, that, are, that are candles to the, to the Virgin Mary or to the, you know, to the, uh, to the Saint S of Guadalupe or whatever the case may be is because it's actually a danger that we can begin to turn our worship to these, to these things that have been created rather than the creator. You know, believe it or not, it's also possible, I think, to use crosses as aids to worship where the cross can become some sort of a lucky rabbit's foot, right? I mean, it really can. And again, a lot of us probably in this room this morning have on like a, you know, a necklace with a cross on it or earrings with crosses on it, or we have a cross in our house. And again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have that necklace. I'm not saying you shouldn't have those earrings. I'm not even saying you shouldn't have it in your house. But what I am saying is that if you use it as an aid in worship, that it's a danger or it's a temptation that you can actually turn towards that thing and use it in a way that somehow circumvents the true worship of God. The temple, I think, became an idol for the Jews, right? I mean, so all of a sudden, instead of the Jews really being concerned about uh, their God and Father, they became much more concerned about the temple. I think the Jews probably turned the Ark of the Covenant into an idol instead of being concerned about the one whom it represented that it became an object of worship for them. The list goes on and on and on. We have to be careful because we need to understand that this is really all about worship. How do we worship God? But we also need to understand that this is really at its core an issue of the heart because we can turn anything into an idol. We really can. You can turn the pastor into an idol. You can turn the music into an idol. You can turn the place that you meet into an idol. And the warning of this is that God is saying, I don't want you to place any temptations of created things before me to aid you in worship or for the purpose of worship. Now, so that's some of the questions of what, but let me get to the question of why. Why is this prohibition in the second commandment given? Why why would, why would God make this the second commandment? It seems like you could make this the ninth maybe or the eighth or something, but, but why let it rank so highly? Well, for one reason, I think that part of the reason this is the second commandment is that God has the right to determine how he is worshipped. That God, as the God of the universe, of the author of reality, of the architect of all that is, that God has the right to determine how he is worshipped. Just like you as a husband or you as a wife, have the right to determine how your husband or wife treats you and loves you. It's very similar in that regard. God says, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm your God. When Moses 
met uh, God out in the wilderness and, uh, and God said, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to do these things. Uh, Moses said, hey, God, I, 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 you know, I don't mean to question you here, but what should I possibly tell the children of Israel that would make them actually go forward and do this? And what God said is tell them I am has sent you. And what Jesus, what, sorry, what God was saying there in Exodus chapter 3 is that I am who I am, whether you like it or not. I am the self-existent one. I am the prime mover. I am the one through whom and from whom all things exist. Therefore, I have the right to determine how I'm worshipped. Let me read a couple other passages here. In Exodus chapter 3, that same passage, God tells Moses, here's how you're to worship me. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Part of what God is communicating there is, come to me in reverence because I'm a holy God. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, we see that, uh, that Paul writes this amazing theological treatise. And essentially what he does in the first 11 chapters of Romans is he unpacks the gospel. All that Jesus has done for you in order to make you acceptable for God. You don't make yourself acceptable to him. And the way that Paul begins the second half of the book is by saying, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, what's happening here is that God is telling us, here's how you worship me. Listen to the words of John chapter four, where Jesus tells the woman at the well, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. In other words, worship is no longer geographically located. Worship is about the reality of your heart. It's about what really matters deep inside you and how you come to me. The Westminster Confession, again, question 50, uh, again, gives us more clarity on this when it says this. It says, what are the duties required in the second commandment? The second commandment requires us to receive, observe, and keep pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed them in his word. In other words, what the Westminster Confession question 50 is saying here is, he's saying God has the right to tell us how we are to worship him. Okay? God has that right because he's God. Okay? And what this commandment assumes, this commandment assumes that it's going to be a temptation for us as human beings to determine how we want to worship God. And part of what's being communicated in this commandment is you've got to be really careful about determining what God uh, accepts as proper worship. It can't be about your preference. It's got to be primarily about God. Let me throw out some potential idols that aren't little pieces of clay that aren't little pieces of brass. But let me throw out some potential idols or things that, we, that might actually be more about our preference than about God. One potential idol is, is liturgical worship. Okay, I come from the, this denomination called the PCA. Some of you know what it's about. Some of you don't. But it's a very academic denomination. And this, there's this uh, style of worship, which is high liturgy. So it's a lot of responsive readings, and it's a lot, you know, sometimes it's what they call smells and bells, and a lot, of it's, a lot of it's, you know, sitting or standing up and sitting down and all sorts of different things. It's very complex. It really has its origin for the, for the most part in the 17th century. 
And there are a lot of people in the PCA who would say, that is the true way to worship God. And whereas I think that's an absolutely fine way to worship God, it becomes an idol when people say, I think, that it's the only way to worship God. What's another way that something can become an idol in terms of our worship that's really might or maybe says more about our preference than about what God desires? For some people, it's the other side of that continuum. It's the other side of that spectrum. For some people, it might be spontaneous, modern, or postmodern worship. In other words, there are a lot of people that left established churches back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s who basically said, oh, those old churches had it all wrong. And they've essentially thrown out the baby with the bathwater, and they've said the way that God really wants to be worshipped is by you know, spontaneous worship that's, that's flowing and free and spirit-led. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that style of worship. What I'm saying is, is when your worship preference becomes more important to you than God himself or what God's preferences are, then you're in danger of creating that worship style as an idol. What about the King James Bible? Maybe this is an occurrence uh, issue now. I grew up in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I literally had somebody tell me one time, they said this, they said, if the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. You get get the humor there? Anyway, but again, people can make an idol out of these really good things, right? And it really functionally ends up being more about their preferences than God's preferences. House churches versus traditional churches. Dress codes and worship. You know, my parents, who I love dearly, they're wonderful, godly people. They know that when they come to Seven Hills Fellowship, they can wear whatever they want. But for them, dress code is, is like the 11th commandment. It's very, very important to them. It's very hard for them to move away from. Chances are that it's actually become a, uh, or it's in the, a danger of becoming an idol for them. What we have to do is we have to remember that God is the primary object of our worship So he has the right to determine how we worship him. I've got preferences in worship. You've got preferences in worship. Let's remember this is really about God. And he has the right to tell us how he desires to be worshiped. The second thing that this, uh, or the second reason that this commandment exists, I think, is because images and idols dishonor God because they conceal or they obscure his true glory. Now, there's a quote here from John Calvin I'm going to put up in a second. But John Calvin says this, he says, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world, and hence his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God in all is itself impious, because by this corruption his majesty is adulterated, and he is figured to be other than or less than he, really, he is. In other words, what Calvin is saying is, is the glory of God is obscured. Now, what's interesting, if you guys remember the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, while Moses is up on uh, Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron is down with the children of Israel at the foot of the mountain. And they get kind of restless. They think maybe something has happened to Moses. Maybe they think God has struck him dead. And so they come to Moses, and I'm not Moses, they come to Aaron, and they say, hey, Aaron, we want you to make us a, an image of God so we can have an image of our God the same way that these, these uh, countries and nations around us have images of their God. And so Aaron gives in and he says, all right, give me your earrings and necklaces and we'll melt it all down into a golden image. And he made it into a calf, which wasn't supposed to represent another God. It was supposed to represent the living and true God. And God was offended by this golden calf because it obscured 
his glory. It was less than his glory because what was supposed to be communicated in this golden calf was virility and strength and youth and all these wonderful things. And God says, no created thing can perfectly reflect my glory. Therefore, do not even try. Listen to the words of J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says this in Isaiah 40, verse 18, after vividly declaring God's immeasurable greatness, the scripture asks, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? The question, according to J.I. Packer, does not expect an answer, only a chastened silence. Its purpose is to remind us that it is absurd as it is impious to think that an image modeled as images must be upon some creature could be an acceptable likeness of the creator, right? It obscures the glory of God. And part of what's being communicated in the second commandment is that God is far greater and far more glorious than you can possibly ever imagine. The last thing, images can mislead us or convey false images about God. Okay, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. Some of you read The Shack, this book that came out, The Shack, several years ago. And uh, it was written, and frankly, I read it, and among my peers, fellow pastors and, and uh, theologians, there were some you know, mixed perceptions of the book. And a lot of people really came down hard on it, and some people said, no, 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 it's fine. But essentially, this book, Shack, The Shack, was, uh, was a story in which the Trinity was each, uh, each of the members of the Trinity were described and given personages, if that makes sense. And so, for instance, Jesus in the book, The Shack, was really painted in this picture as sort of this like, you know, carpenter with rough hands and muscles and ruddy and muscular and cool kind of in some respects. And the Holy Spirit was, was painted as sort of this, uh, you know, sort of shifting uh, artistic gardener of sorts, this ethereal idea of the Holy Spirit. And then God was actually depicted as a, a very large, gregarious African-American woman, right? And so some people were offended by that. And, uh, and really, as I read it, on the one hand, I appreciated what the author was trying to do because what the author was trying to do was he was trying to, to overcome some misconceptions that we have about who God is or about the, who the Holy Spirit is, about who Jesus is. But at the same time, there's a danger, it's a temptation that when you start thinking about God, the God of the universe, you start thinking about this God as a large African-American woman, right? And, and who's very gregarious and jovial and kind. And I'm not, I don't intend to make fun or, or to be sarcastic there, but rather to say, like the golden calf, no human being that's painted in a story or painted on canvas or fashioned out of uh, clay or out of bronze can ever truly convey the true nature of who God is. That's why in Exodus chapter 3, God says, I am who I am. Okay, let me, let me stop here. Again, this is tricky. I mean, I'm just not kidding you. This is one of the harder sermons I've preached in a long time. And so the good news about this sermon is I know that I can say one thing is true. If, if, if everything else is maybe my opinion or a perception, I can say one thing is true here. And the, and the one thing I can say that's true is I can ask the question, where is Jesus in the second commandment? Where is Jesus? Listen to the words of E.P. Clowney as he gives us the answer. And don't miss this. If you miss anything, don't miss this. When the law was proclaimed at Sinai, this was by Moses, the Israelites saw no image of God. Even Moses didn't see God. They only heard a voice. 
the picture of God was not complete. We see the same element of incompleteness in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was kept in the tabernacle. It had a lid of gold on which there were figures of two cherubs or angels. Even when the glory of God rested above the cherubim, the lid on the Ark, known as the mercy seat, was vacant. That void contained a promise. The one must come for whom that seat was reserved. The throne is reserved for Jesus Christ. No man or idol can sit in that holy seat. The jealous love of God will not tolerate idols, for God will send his own image, his incarnate son, to occupy the empty seat, which, by the way, is the mercy seat. And so if one thing I can say about the second commandment, this prohibition, if one thing I can say is true, it's this. The reason that we're to have no images of God to assist us in worship is because there's only one true image of God, and that is in Jesus Christ himself. Listen to the words of Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. He says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image, the icon, the image, the representation, the figure, the manifestation of the invisible God. The reason that we're to have no images of God is because our only true aid in worship of coming before our Heavenly Father is Jesus Christ, his only Son, through whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. So let's take a moment now and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Ten Commandments that, again, paint a picture of the world which we actually hope exists. Father, I pray that as we read through the Ten Commandments and as we study them, I pray that you would protect us from error. But Father, I pray that you would also enable us uh, to glean the truth that is within the Ten Commandments and, uh, and that those Ten Commandments might frame our soul, and that those Ten Commandments, every single one of them, might point us to your Son, Jesus, as we realize that we've broken the First Commandment, and the Second Commandment, and the Third Commandment, and the Seventh Commandment, and the Ninth Commandment, and the Tenth Commandment, Father. And so all the way along, rather than falling into despair, we would fall into the arms of our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.